Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. George Selgin, welcome to the What Is Money show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. Really glad to have you on. Uh, by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, you've authored a number of books, I think mostly focused on money, finance, the history of those two. Um, and today we're going to be focusing on your book, Money, Free and Unfree. So um, I guess what would be useful is maybe we could just start with your story, because you do have this kind of interesting path into finance, money and economics that um, you started down more of the traditional route, it seems like, and then you later on discovered some of the the libertarian economists like Mises and, and Hayek. Um, could you just fill us in a little bit on your, your path to, to where you are today? Yeah, well, I'll try to do it quickly, but I can resist mentioning that I actually started out uh, with a big interest in marine biology and aquaculture, mm. zoology and all that. I had a degree in zoology. I got a last minute degree in economics. I was trying to combine those interests while I was at a graduate program on marine uh, resource economics in Rhode Island, the inflation was raging. <laughs> that was the last one before this one. We had double digit inflation then, and it was almost at its peak. And I found myself really reading a lot on inflation and money. I was fascinated by what was going on and trying to understand it. And I, uh, I read pretty voraciously, uh, and I read dozens of books. And eventually I read... Uh, Hayek's uh, uh, Denationalization of Money. And that book, really just a pamphlet, published in 1978, that one really impressed me. And I also went on and read uh, von Mises' Theory of Money and Credit. And between the two of those books, I thought I'd found my, my uh, teachers, uh, at least <laughs> my dead teachers. And, uh, and that's when I... Uh, became a, a fan of uh, Austrian economics, was through those monetary writings. Then I ended up leaving that grad program because my interest in money was so, in monetary research had gotten so keen, I ended up going to New York University. I'd learned about Larry White, who was just on his way to uh, teach there. 
he was a grad student when I wrote to him. And so I became his first student and I've been on this kick uh, ever since of studying money in its various aspects, but always with a particular, a particular interest in how much markets can contribute to uh, having stable, sound monetary systems. And I, I still be, believe they can contribute a lot more than they've generally been allowed to. Yeah, so we, I, I guess the the core theme here would be that um, we don't have free markets and money today. Um, and yet that is something that is not deeply understood by many people. Would yeah, that be safe to yeah. say? <laughs> <laughs> that would be very safe to say. You know, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't think that it's uh, by any means likely that we can ever have free markets and money. Not that they couldn't work, and my a lot of my research is dedicated to showing that they could work quite well. And in some instances where they've been allowed to work, more or less, we know we don't have pristine examples of perfect laissez-faire monetary systems in the past, but we have some approximations we can study, and they work pretty well. Uh, now, I don't think we can get there again for all kinds of reasons, but I still think all economists uh, and some lay people should, should know about how money can work, how monetary systems can work in the absence of heavy-handed government regulation. I, I wish that my fellow economists would take that subject seriously, even if they end up deciding, okay, I now understand it. I still think we need to regulate the heck out of it. Fine. But what we have now is heavy handed regulations uh, that are formulated by and defended by people who have no idea of how, how market based arrangements work. So they don't really know what they've regulated. They just <laughs> they just regulated a lot. So that's where we're at. That's where we've been at for a long, long time. And, you know, it seems, at least in the West, well, I guess I'll say in the U.S., where I'm, I'm most familiar, the idea of centrally planning markets in general has really fallen far out of favor. You know, we've we kind of made that, that battle was fought and won somewhat in the 20th century when U.S. Mm -hmm. capitalism outcompeted Soviet communism, but we don't, we haven't applied that lesson to money yet. So what are the consequences of centrally planned money as disastrous as centrally planning other aspects of the economy? Or is this something that's less damaging? How do you how do you compare the two? I put it this way, uh, Robert, that uh, no, centrally planning money alone isn't as bad as trying to central plan everything. But if centrally planning any one thing can approximate that degree of badness, money is the thing. And the reason is that when you centrally plan money and you mismanage it, it you're, you're, mismanaging, uh, you're mismanaging the part of the economic system that uh, is the guidepost for everything else. It's, this, it's, the, it's the part of the economic system that uh, uh, people depend on for setting prices and those prices in turn steer the use of resources. So if you have an unstable monetary system, I've compared it, I've made the following analogy. Uh, if every market price is like the spoke in a bicycle tire, right? Some prices may be off a little bit, you know, and the wheel's a little out of true. You could use a little adjustment here, a little adjustment there. 
when you think about mucking around with a monetary system, it's like uh, it's it's as if you could twist the whole wheel uh, around because the the whole thing has been deformed, and that that's what happens when we have mismanaged uh, money or monetary systems that don't regulate money uh, effectively, and we're seeing that sort of thing today. I saw it back in my <laughs> grad school days in 1980. I was telling you about. We see situations where the monetary system is not being well managed or hasn't been well designed. And the outcome is the whole system of market prices is not as effective in efficiently uh, guiding resource use. And the economy becomes a little bit more dysfunctional and moves a little bit in the direction of a socialist economy that's inherently so. That makes a lot of sense. So then uh correct me where i'm wrong but then the argument that centrally planning money would sort of infect other areas of the economy over time it it it, it, it affects all the areas uh, of the economy because when the central planning is done badly because your system of relative prices tends to not be functioning well if you think of prices as signals that are supposed to guide how people uh, use resources, you know, by telling them which ones are more scarce, uh, more popular, and so on. Uh, those noise, those price signal signals get noisy when money is being mismanaged. For example, in an inflationary situation, you have the usual ongoing adjustments of prices that has to take place anyway because of tastes and preference preferences changing, and now you've heaped on top of that the consequences of excessive money creation and growth of overall spending. And the result is that the price system has too much work to do. It's kind of being overloaded. Uh, and uh, and uh, when that happens, uh, the individual price systems tend to get, price signals tend to get noisier and become less reliable as guides to how resources should be used. So I, I don't want uh, I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Market-based monetary systems also are imperfect, and there are a number of reasons why the money supply can behave in a less than ideal way in these arrangements. But um, some of the most gross distortions that we occasionally see with modern systems, but also all past systems where the banking systems were uh, uh, vulnerable to crises. The, we, the best free market systems avoided that kind of instability. So they weren't perfect, but they were in many respects pretty good. So, uh, but we can talk more about those details. I just, just don't want people to think that that uh, uh, free market monetary systems of the past were were ideal. It's really a matter of comparing their faults with the faults of regulated systems and deciding which ones are uh, the least bad. Yeah, that's a very important point that there are, I mean, there are no perfect solutions, right? We're always navigating these trade-off relationships where it might yeah. be better in one respect, but but worse in another respect. But I guess the, again, one lesson from the 20th century is that these free market economies tend to adapt more quickly, whereas essentially planned economy can, things can get really, really, really bad 
And then when you have like the ultimate collapse as with the Soviet Union, there's just this devastation that you wouldn't necessarily incur in a free market economy that would oh. sort of release that pressure more gradually over time. Yeah, I like. I mean, I like to think that we've we've <laughs> we've learned that lesson about socialism and central planning writ large versus having a market-based economic system, even if it's not pristinely so. Um, I hope I hope we're not veering back towards people advocating uh, comprehensive central planning because that is a gigantic flop. Uh, it always has been a flop. It never did work well in those nations that attempted it. Uh, but but even market economies, that is the ones that have avoided comprehensive central planning, have had their own Achilles heels and their own weaknesses. And one, one of the sources of weakness has been poorly designed monetary and banking systems that, that, that are unstable and that prevent those otherwise market-oriented economies from functioning as well as they could. Yeah, well said. Um, let me ask you this before we move on. So prices, when they're distorted through the debasement of money, right? This is leading to the misallocation of capital or resources. That then naturally seems to beckon more regulation, right? There's a problem, there's shortages, there's the prices are too high, whatever it is, this people are suffering in one way or another. And this creates the impetus or the um, the desire for more regulation in, an, in a misguided attempt to fix it. But then that, that very regulation tends to kind of worsen the problems over time. So, you know, you get into things like price controls and um, things that really don't work. So is it, is that the pathway through which centrally planning money starts to kind of gradually infect other areas of the economy? Is that it's just creating this pain of misallocated capital and resources so then people want more regulation, more regulation kind of makes it worse. The cycle repeats. Is that what's going on here? Well, it's difficult to generalize. Von Mises had this theory of the regulatory dynamic where one kind of uh, regulatory interference caused problems and that led to more regulation and so on. And Hayek had a similar, somewhat similar argument uh, uh, in Road to Serfdom. So you can have these tendencies. And it is true that uh, many regulations uh, of, uh, uh, and uh, mismanagement of money included uh, can breed further interventions, misguided attempts to solve the problems that are, are created by one regulation by introducing another regulation that itself causes, causes problems. You do see this throughout history. The one caveat I'd add though is uh, that uh, I don't think this necessarily leads you down the road to full scale socialism. Instead, you get a kind of <laughs> uh, ongoing rot with where the, the, the kinds of regulatory interference may change. They may not accumulate into outright socialism. They may just be some regulations pushing out others or being added to them. And you do get a bigger and bigger bureaucracy, regulatory bureaucracy. Uh, that we see all the time. But it doesn't necessarily lead, uh, as Mises and Hayek uh, suggested it tended to, to outright socialism. That doesn't mean that it's a good thing. But uh, just to, 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 to give you a concrete case, 
um, I've often said to students and to other economists who talk about financial crises, I would say to them, you know, if you show me a past financial crisis, doesn't matter how recent or how long ago, I'll show you a bunch of stupid regulations that played an absolutely crucial role in causing that crisis. I, I've always been willing to, 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 to make that <laughs> uh, statement. Uh, and I've never had anyone uh, prove, uh, give me a case where I couldn't in fact show that it was so. But uh, the point is that a lot of times today when people are saying, oh, look how unstable the banking system is, look what happened back then, et cetera, et cetera, we need regulation. What they are not aware of is the role past regulations played in the crises that they're referring to, which they're trying to use as an excuse to do more regulating. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so in regard to your book, it's broken up into three parts. First part, you have uh, the regulatory sources of financial instability. Second part, you have a, a section titled Before the Fed. And then finally, in the third part, you have the Federal Reserve Era. So... Um, on what you just said there, where you're willing to look at a financial disaster and describe some of the regulations that led to it, uh, is that something you could do? I mean, I guess we just picked the big, the big one, right? 1929. What types of, I guess, regulatory sources of financial instability, as part one of your book describes, what were the contributors to the the collapse in 1929? Well, uh, that's a big one, uh, Robert. It's, uh, it's quite, it's manifold. There are many things going on in that uh, particular case, partly because the causes, the crisis was an international crisis. So uh, if I could just pick out some of the leading culprits, regulatory culprits in that, I'd pick first and foremost something called the gold exchange standard. The story there is that uh, we had something called uh, the classical gold standard, which was in place uh, and uh, taken part in by a number of Western countries, most of them, until the outbreak of the First World War. And in that class of classical gold standard, people owned gold coins. And uh, for the most part, banks uh, settled up with each other, either in gold or in some secondary reserves. but. Uh, the individual nations kept their own gold reserves. They didn't keep reserves at some foreign central bank. And in fact, uh, in that old system, quite a few countries didn't have central banks at all. Canada didn't, Scotland didn't, the United States didn't. Uh, what happened is in the First World War, all the belligerents went off the gold standard and you had temporary fiat or credit systems with a lot of inflation. When, when uh, they tried after the war to cobble the gold standard back, they faced a lot of difficulties in doing so, partly because of the amount of money creation that had gone on in the interim. So they came up with a number of makeshifts, uh, uh, the biggest of which was something called the gold exchange standard, where most countries held their gold. Instead of keeping their own gold reserves at their central banks, they, they uh, kept uh, their uh, they took part in cooperative arrangements with other central banks, especially the uh, Bank of England and the Bank of the United States, 
So the Bank of England, I mean, the Bank of the Federal Reserve System of the United States. So the Fed and the Bank of England became uh, sort of international central banks. This system was very vulnerable for all kinds of reasons, because there were fewer gold reserves relative to the total amount of money. And uh, any lack of cooperation by some of the participating nations could cause the whole thing to collapse like a house of cards. And that's more or less what happened when France, which was part of this deal, decided to accumulate gold in the mid-1920s. And it was hoarding all this gold. The U.S. was also hoarding a fair amount. And uh, ultimately, Britain became <laughs> the big victim and it couldn't sustain its gold standards. So this stuff is really complicated. This particular one you asked me about is very involved. But anyway, the, the so-called gold exchange standard was a, a weak, a very weak element of the post-World War I international monetary system that ultimately blew up. The other part of the story is the domestic part of the story, the US part of the story. And our particular weakness in the 20s was the fact that we had, uh, uh, we had an agricultural crisis. We'd had one ever since World War I uh, 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 ended. And, uh, and we had a unit banking system that was very, very weak with individual banks that had no branches and in agricultural areas, areas, they they were failing in droves. So we had a banking system that was falling apart and subject to runs. And it was all because of regulations that prevented our banks from branching and gave us tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands of tiny undiversified banks. Well, <laughs> I'm oversimplifying greatly, but if you combine the weakness of our banking system with the vulnerability of the international gold exchange standard system, when the one thing imploded, in our particular case, we also ended up with uh, an even worse situation for our banks that culminated in the great uh, banking holiday of, uh, the big, of uh, February, sorry, March 1933 where all of our banking system had to be shut down because of a mass run that was going on on gold. So that's, that's a very, very, <laughs> already very involved story that, that is still quite a oversimplified version of what happened, but at least it conveys uh, some of the ways in which government mucking around with monetary systems internationally and nationally could make them artificially weak. And that's the big lesson that I want to get across. The gold standard that existed before World War I was a strong gold standard. And countries that had branch banking had strong banking systems. In fact, the US was the only country that really had a very weak banking system and had these banking crises. And that's one of the reasons why the depression was particularly bad in the United States. But we dragged down many countries with us when we collapsed because they relied so heavily on trade with us. So there's, there's the Great Depression in what doesn't sound to your audience like a nutshell, but believe me, it is. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Sorry to hit you with a hard, big question there. But um, let me drill into something you said. So you talked about the pre- 1914 and correct me where i'm wrong on any of this pre-1914 classical gold standard that's right 
versus the interwar period gold exchange standard, which was That's something correct. different. Yes. And that was a move towards weakness, as you described. So something yes. away from something robust towards something weaker. Is that, I guess, sort of two-part question, what are the differences between the two? And then is that move, that move towards weakness, was that a result of a move towards centralization overall? Is that what actually created the weakness? You could say that. I would uh, say that uh, the big difference uh, was that the 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 classical gold standard didn't require a lot of co cooperation. There was no real central bank running that system. Some people have misinterpreted the classical gold standard as having been managed or orchestrated in some way by the Bank of England, but I think that's a myth. Mostly, it was a system where uh, individual countries, banking systems, would expand if gold was flowing into them and would contract if gold was flowing out. There was normally no tendency for any nation's banking system to just pile up uh, and hoard bank reserves because the tendency was for the decentralized banks to put any gold that came their way to use. You know, the bankers aren't interested in storing. They, they want to make loans. <laughs> And they, they keep gold on hand for settlement purposes, but otherwise they put it to use. And what happened after the war, partly just because of the multiplication of central banks, central banks don't behave like ordinary banks. They can do things like sterilize gold inflows, which is not accumulate the gold, but don't let the, uh, the, the monetary system expand because of that. Or they could do the opposite sometimes, you know, they could expand independently of gold inflows. Central banks can really throw a uh, wrench into what otherwise would be an, a well-functioning international gold system. But what happened after World War II was it ju wasn't just individual central banks that were uh, throwing wrenches into the works, as it were. There also was this arrangement where certain central banks acted as uh, as uh, super central banks to others that were supposed to uh, uh, rely on credits at those banks instead of gold reserves. And uh, so, for example, uh, France might owe, uh, England might owe France uh, money, gold. But instead of taking the gold to save on gold, France was supposed to just accumulate, let credits accumulate on its account at the Bank of England, right? This, is, this was their way of, of doing a gold standard on the cheap, you know, or just treat these, your deposits at the Bank of England as gold, but don't ask for the gold. What you ended up happening was France particularly decided it wanted to cash in its chips at the Bank of England all at once, and that precipitated the what was the beginning of the end of that uh, gold exchange standard in 1931. Uh, that was a big contribution to the international crisis. We think of it in America as having begun with the stock market crash in 1921, and it did. But there were international developments that really gave uh, it a lot more momentum uh, that, uh, of course, reverberated uh, back into our own economy. Interesting. So then the I guess the dividing line between the classical gold standard and the gold exchange standard was a move away from 
entities possessing gold mostly away versus... from banks holding their own so you have actually a, the purest gold standard is individual banks will own their own keep their own gold reserves they might they might uh, uh, put the reserves with a central clearinghouse but they don't hold credits the, the clearinghouse doesn't uh, uh, it's just warehousing their reserves. So the, the only fractional reserve banking going on there is at the individual banks. When you create a, a central bank for one nation, now you've got a kind of pyramiding. So uh, individual banks, instead of holding gold as their reserves, hold credits at the central bank and it holds the gold. So you're leveraging that gold that much, what, that much more. You've kind of got individual fractional reserve banks keeping accounts, keeping their reserves as accounts at a big central fractional reserve bank. So it's a fraction of a fraction of gold reserves. What they did after World War One uh, uh, was they created yet another layer consisting of the two central banks I mentioned, where the central banks of other countries would keep their accounts at those central banks. So you had uh, individual banks holding fractional reserves consisting of credits at their domestic or national central bank. And that national central bank has got an account of the Bank of England, which it's <laughs> where it's holding uh, reserves. And there's only a fraction of, of those reserves. This structure becomes exceedingly fragile. And then what you had was effectively France staged a run on the Bank of England and the whole thing comes tumbling down. So uh, that, it actually took a lot of effort to create a st structure that fragile. And it would never have happened without planners having cobbled this thing together after the war. It wasn't something that would have popped up on its own spontaneously. Right, yeah. The central banks themselves are not products of, of uh, ordinary market uh, developments. They, they have to be created by legislation. So same was true of the gold exchange standard it took a lot of of cooperation to make this dangerous system work in the first place and then as soon as that cooperation started to unravel it all collapsed that makes a lot of sense um yeah when you start depending on promises to gold rather than possession or custody of gold the system becomes a lot more levered there's a lot more um counterparty risk leverage whatever, whatever you want to call it in this system right so it's fragilized it's becoming more fragilized yeah. as it becomes more centralized yeah and i don't want to uh, you know i'm pro fractional reserves i'm one of those and i think in the individual competitive banking system level fractional reserves are fine but when you start doing a fraction of a fraction of a fraction and it all depends on individual see the way an ordinary bank can get away with fractional reserves is it's got thousands of customers and they're acting independently and the money's flowing in from some it's flowing out from the other and these things tend to balance but when you're the bank of england and you have four customers or 10 customers considering consisting of other central banks one of them alone could spoil everything, right? It's like one big depositor says, oh, we want our gold back, it falls apart. So this was not an arrangement that was ever as safe, even to put it that way, even as an ordinary fractional reserve system is. A fra ordinary individual fractional reserve banking is risky, 
but this was super, 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 super risky. And at some point, the trade-off between risk and saving on gold or economizing on gold, uh, they went way overboard in what was uh, a worthwhile tra trade-off. And the cost of that was an international financial crisis and depression. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I think there's a number of good points I want to highlight there. One is you make the point that a lot of this system was designed to overcome the shortcomings of gold, right? The fact that gold is really heavy, Actually, not so portable. The international, so that's true of all the, uh, any kind of fractional mm -hmm. bank, but they had a particular problem, Robert, after World War II, because they'd inflated their money supplies dramatically, World War I, they'd inflated their money supplies dramatically. And so you had all this IOUs out there and you didn't have that much gold. Gold supply was essentially what it was before World War I. <laughs> so it's all been inflated and this has happened during a time when none of these currencies were convertible. Now they want to make them convertible into gold again. Well, how are you going to do that? There are two obvious options uh, that would work. They would have worked. Um, the easiest one is devalue, reset the gold price. So now, you know, every every piece of paper or every IOU is worth less gold. And, and then that would have worked. But they were very reluctant to do it, especially the English. They wanted to get back to the old traditional pound. The other thing they could do, of course, is deflate. That is bring the money stocks back down. And so that old supply of gold will be adequate again. And some of them did some of that, but they didn't really want to do too much because it's a painful process. The third option, which is the one that <laughs> turned out to be so dangerous was to say, well, let's just try to get by with less gold and without contracting the money supply and without devaluing by coming up with this triple pyramid layer so that we don't need as much gold. And it's true that now we're going to have to have, we're going to rely on these central banks to do the right thing, to not try to get their gold. So we need cooperation that we need it more than we ever needed it under the old gold standard. Well, you know, the problem with a system that relies so heavily on cooperation by a few players is that if they don't cooperate, it, it fails. So it was an extremely vulnerable arrangement. And, and anybody could have seen that. They were just, you know, going on a wing and a prayer that, uh, that everyone would keep cooperating. Mm. And the French got in. I, I keep blaming the French. But the U.S., the Federal Reserve hoarded gold, too, in the 20s. We had so much gold. We had a gigantic amount of gold. And the rest of the world didn't have much. But France also had a lot. And between the U.S. and France, we ultimately ended up beggaring the other countries that also ultimately needed gold to back their liabilities or their central banks and other banks. So, um, yes, it was a it's a tragic story. You know, these and a lot of the stories about um, economic crises are, are tragic because it's not that there was any easy solution after World War One. World War One had upset all the monetary arrangements. There were difficult choices. There were options, all of which were going to do something going to hurt people, right? Deflation's painful. Devaluation's going to upset ordinary contractual relationships. It's going to make people wonder whether the British pound can ever be trusted again, right? It was a big deal for, for any 
central bank to devalue its currency because its reputation was at stake. So you have all these hard choices. I think, of course, it's easy to say in retrospect, they made the worst possible choice by trying to get away with that fragile system that they set up, and it failed. Yeah, so I mean, I'm just reminded that the path to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, they, they were trying to defer the judgment day, I guess, or the day of reconciliation back to this That's economic exactly. reality, kick the can down the road. And it, you know, there's this, when you delay, I think about this a couple of ways. One is I got from Taleb. He says that delayed volatility is exacerbated volatility. So you're just kicking that can down the road yeah. to a worse tomorrow. I think uh -huh. that's that's part of the story. That's right. And, you know, um, in principle, they could have taken a, taken a slow route. Don't go back. Don't restore gold convertibility right away. Let your economies gradually grow up to the new situation. We did that with the Civil War, right? We went off the gold standard in 1862, and uh, we didn't go back on it till 1879, not completely. So we took our time, and that's how the United States got back on the gold standard without going through, and it got back on its original gold standard, same gold dollar, uh, but it took its time. If you take your time, you can grow up into the, the, to the situation where uh, the fact that you have had so much money creation in between, you, 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 you can adapt to that new situation. But the nations of Europe after World War I were in a hurry to stabilize their exchange rates, etc. So they, they didn't want to take, the, you know, 16, 17 years to do it. And they, they paid a big price for that. Makes sense. Um, the other theme I'm detecting here is that in this process of centralizing or or increasing the interdependencies let's say in the financial system you're creating this customer concentration risk as you said right when the one big central bank of central banks has 10 customers you lose one customer that's a real problem whereas yes. if you have 10,000 banks you know customers are coming in and out it's less uh severe any any one um migration is less severe now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then, when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. 
instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. The other thing here is that this is then that whole system that becomes more centralized, uh, more laden with customer concentration risk, as you said, also becomes more dependent on cooperation. You need everyone to kind of, you know, play by the rules or play, sing off the same song sheet or whatever you want to put it. But that very cooperation is difficult to maintain, especially when it acts against their self-interest, right? It's in France's self-interest to take possession of the gold rather than just take the IOU from Bank of England for interest, for instance. Yeah, at a certain so, point. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a bugs took over the Bank of France and they said we, we want hard money, we want our gold. Right. And, so there's a tipping know. point, right? We're we're using the banking model out of convenience in a way to overcome some of perhaps the technological shortcomings of gold or other things. But there's a point where that the price of that convenience becomes so great in terms of risk that, that the system doesn't work anymore. So my my question after all of that would be and I don't want to jump to today, we'll, we'll kind of come back to the history here, but what is the geopolitical relevance of gold today? If it's, if we're now on a global kind of fiat system and situation, what, how, how do you view gold and its relevance to the geopolitical order today? I don't know if I can answer the broad question about the geopolitical order. What I can say is that gold doesn't, have much of a role at all in the modern monetary system. Central banks still hold uh, gold. They still own it as an asset among others in their portfolios. But fundamentally, the <clears throat> monetary systems today are totally independent from gold. Its importance is as a is is simply as a uh, a, a, a component of their asset portfolios and of course of private asset portfolios that's there to uh, guard against the possibility of general uh, a general inflation it's it's most widely used as a hedge so uh, but you can't uh, but but you can no longer say that uh, the quantities of gold held anywhere or the behavior of gold's price tells us anything about how uh, central banks are going to manage their own monies. It could tell us something about how they've been managing their own monies, that because the price of gold often responds to uh, inflation and other signals. But it, uh, it is no longer the case that there are any mechanical relationships between the quantity of gold on the one hand or its price and uh, the quantities and values of national fiat monies. Interesting. Um, you used a verb earlier talking about this transition. Um, I think we said from the classical gold standard to the gold exchange standard that there was this pyramiding up, right? We had kind of all the banks inside of a central bank. Then you get all the central banks pyramiding up to a, uh, I think you said a leading central bank, like 
like England or the U.S., the Federal Reserve. And then presumably, I guess, the Bank of International Settlements sits somewhere at the top of one of these pyramids today. Well, uh, yeah, except but now we don't have that kind of arrangement because we don't have even a gold exchange standard. So it isn't, it, although there is such a thing, of course, as the Bank of International Settlements, it doesn't, uh, it isn't analogous to what, uh, its role is not analogous to that that the Bank of England and the Bank of the United States played during the uh, gold exchange standard. In the, that they're not holding the gold right. for those counterparties. Well, right. they, may be, they may have gold, but they're not. Central banks are not. Uh, uh, central banks don't, don't depend on uh, any of the reserves held by the Bank of International Settlement in the way that they depended on the balances they kept at other central banks in the 1930s. We, we have a fiat monetary system. The Federal Reserve doesn't need to get access to anything <laughs> to, to be able to print money. It doesn't rely on having gold. It doesn't rely on having a balance at the BIS. It doesn't rely on having any of those things. It doesn't even need much capital. It could operate without it completely for a time. So that's the beauty of fiat money, is that you never have to worry about, uh, uh, a central bank never has to worry about facing much of a resource constraint when it comes to creating the stuff. That's the good news. The bad news is that because central banks don't have resource constraints when it comes to creating the stuff, they, they sometimes create too much of it, and they can do so with impunity. Uh, because they don't have to worry about running out of some scarce resource that they need. So uh, fiat money is great when it comes to central banks never getting in trouble. It is not so great when it comes to keeping them from causing trouble. Yeah, that makes sense. So the Fed doesn't necessarily need capital or anything to back it, but what it does need... It, it needs, needs that legal anything. monopoly, right? It needs... Yes. Oh, yes. That yeah. it needs. Indeed. It needs... Well, it needs to have... Once once you have uh, a fiat currency like the dollar that's so entrenched, then uh, you might argue doesn't even need the monopoly, uh, at least not for a while, because people are going to keep using it. But, but in the long run, you're right. It does need to have a monopoly because... In principle, uh, uh, the Fed's ability to function uh, would suffer if it weren't for the fact that there is a robust demand for Federal Reserve notes. There's a robust demand for dollar assets that the Fed creates. But a lot of this, at this point, there's a great deal of a momentum behind the demand for dollar assets. It's, it's stronger than it's ever been. So I think that you could make an analogy with a with a with a rocket ship where you need you need this booster thing to get get the rocket ship in orbit but once you've got it in orbit the booster can die out and fall off and the thing will keep orbiting the dollar's been like that monopoly privileges help to give it the stature that it has today but those privileges could uh, uh the monopoly uh, powers that the fed enjoys could be reduced substantially, the dollar would continue to be popular and continue to be demanded on the basis of the powerful momentum that's now behind it, that's used internationally for all kinds of things. So those those monopoly privileges are used to 
solidify the network effects perhaps of the dollar yes, they, then... that's right they help get those things you know going yeah and it's very analogous to change the subject briefly to what what they were trying to do with bitcoin in el salvador right uh, quite quite uh, correctly as far as theory is concerned you try to make it legal tender and compel people to use it uh, uh, and, and encourage them in other ways once if bitcoin were uh, if they had succeeded that way to get Bitcoin widely adopted in ordinary payments in El Salvador, and the evidence is, says, suggests that that hasn't happened, but if, the, if it had happened, then the thing would probably eventually keep going on its own, if you know what I mean. Even if you took the legal tender status away, uh, by then it would be entrenched and it would continue to be uh, the nation's money. That's the theory anyway. That makes sense too. So if you look at the evolutionary progression of the dollar, uh, originally it was exchangeable for gold, right? It was a warehouse receipt right. for gold. So effectively right. it's yeah, co-opting. launching vehicle then. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So the, the network effects of gold were piggybacked on by the dollar. That's the dollar right. was as good as gold, so to speak, for some period of time. Then you remove that convertibility or redeemability. And it's, it's kind of there. yeah, it's sort of hijacked the network effects. That's and is it is there an educational component here too, where you're because tr- I know that like a lot of Keynesian economists have called gold the barbarous relic, and they've tried to. I don't know. I guess uh, Keynes himself called it that. Keynes himself called Keynes himself. Yeah. So to just to to instill in people's minds that gold is not necessary or wasn't necessary is another part of this. I guess it's kind of a psychological operation getting people onto a fiat standard because, as you said earlier, it doesn't emerge naturally. Once, once you've got everybody holding substitutes for gold, whether it's the fiat money or bank money that uh, uh, is convertible into gold, then you can have a situation where you can, and, and they're not used to handling gold particularly, then you can deprive them of the right to have the gold. It does, this doesn't necessarily mean there won't be an adverse reaction or that the value of the dollar won't change because of the changed status. But if it's already in widespread use, people cannot you know, uh, flip a switch and <laughs> use something else. Uh, there's a, that, as, as we were saying, there's this powerful network effect that, that allows the thing to keep going. So when we went off the gold standard in this country uh, I mean, for the first time, and, uh, and permanently off of the gold coin standard in 1933. Well, people found themselves holding dollars, but they just weren't gold dollars. In fact, they had to hand in all their gold, but the dollar was still money. And now they had fiat money, just like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, oh, well, life goes on. So, uh, um, it, 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 it is a question of uh, having an established network, but you're right. I, I don't know of any, the closest thing, okay, I have to be careful how I say this, but the closest thing historically to something being like a fiat money that has been launched with no promise of a fixed exchange rate with something established and no intrinsic non-monetary uses, use value, that sort of thing is Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, you have an experiment of trying to get people to adopt something as money without a fixed exchange rate thing that gets it off the ground. 
and also without people being able to, you know, having valued it independently for some, you know, as a, as a commodity of some kind. Right. And uh, well, they got the thing to be valuable, of course, that to that extent they've succeeded, uh, but they haven't really gotten it to be widely used as money. So what they've created is a kind of interesting experiment where they made something that didn't look like, doesn't look like it should have had any value independently of a specul speculation take off as a purely speculative object right it's purely speculative and that's tricky but they did it now we know it can happen yeah yeah interesting um the yeah so one point you make there i guess that's in regards to the mises regression theorem right that something needs to be traded for some industrial or commodity use before it becomes money and bitcoin kind of skipped that whole there's yes, no industrial use for Bitcoin. It's pure money. That's exactly right. Yeah. And Mises theorem, uh, which I subscribed to, I thought was a very elegant theorem explaining how fiat money could get going. And, uh, we needed a theory. We didn't have a good theory of that. It is a tricky problem. How people could value it when it was no longer uh, valued on the basis of what you can convert it into, which was itself something that had value before it was money and all that. So uh, Bitcoin has definitely shown that while the regression theorem may, may explain how actual historic fiat monies got going in some cases or how they could be valued, that, that that theorem does not, after all, tell us the only route by which something that has no commodity value can become widely accepted. That makes sense. The um on the topic of fiat currency, then, as we said, it's not something that emerges spontaneously. It necessitates uh, this legal monopoly, typically necessitates some prior existing monetary network effect like gold, although we said with Bitcoin that was kind of skipped in a way. Um what does that mean for the users of fiat currency? Because it seems like a pretty bad deal for people that are outside that legal monopoly, but forced to use it. Um, are they are they being, I don't know, are their property rights being violated via inflation? It's well, all, Inflation's uh, often yeah. called taxation without representation. How does this system, I guess, hurt or harm individuals? It all depends on how it's managed, of course. Now, there are mm -hmm. two different things here. One is the original situation where let's say we've got a gold standard and all that. And I think I've got an IOU, uh, I've got a Federal Reserve note and it's supposed to be worth a certain amount of gold. And, and then the Fed says, or the government says, sorry, we're never gonna give you your gold back again. Now, at that point, you, of course, you, you have a confiscatory uh, 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 development and a uh, reason for people to be upset about it. And they were upset about losing their right to own gold, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's true, by the way, regardless of what happens to the purchasing power, you can still complain. I, you know, I want my gold, okay? I, I know the dollar's still worth just as much. Prices haven't risen, I, you know, but I, my rights have been violated. And that, that, and that is what happened. People have have examined that and asked, well, what were the alternatives or all kinds of reasons why that may have been, after all, the, the, the only real recourse that could allow the banking system to get back on its feet again. Okay. But there's no question that we're talking about a violation of rights in that case. But now let's, you know, we'll go, go forward in time, several generations, and 
all all bygones are bygones as far as, far as those old uh, original holders of gold who lost their gold are concerned. That, that's water uh, 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 over the dam. Well, uh, so today, what we ask is that uh, we can still suffer as holders of fiat money. We can suffer a kind of confiscation still as a result of inflation, where the value of our holdings is deteriorated. Uh, and uh, that is, that's a different kind of, uh, if you like, uh, uh, a taking, a, a kind of theft, if you like. Um, and, uh, and then uh, uh, the extent to which, though it's so, really does depend on the particular circumstances. Because in some arrangements, it's possible for people, at least many people, to, to protect themselves quite thoroughly from the effects of inflation by holding very little non-interest earning money, perhaps no paper money at all. And that's becoming more and more common. All your money consists of deposits that at least in principle can earn interest that compensates for inflation and so on. So it isn't it is not such a straightforward thing to say, when is your central bank stealing from you or not, right? It's not that simple anymore. Uh, 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 but, it, it, but, but that doesn't mean we can't uh, speak about an inflation tax and speak about the circumstances where it boils down to something pretty substantial or confiscatory or whatever. At some point, of course, uh, we have to resort to value judgments to decide <laughs> what 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 counts as theft or not but but i also think it's important to stress here that uh, central banks don't always allow their currencies to depreciate and right now we happen to be in a time where inflation is back uh, with a vengeance but it wasn't very long ago when <laughs> there wasn't much of it and people even worried that there wasn't enough so uh, it's not the case that central banks are uh, absolutely held bound to allow their currencies to depreciate rapidly. Uh, there is a long run tendency for pretty much all fiat monies to lose value over time. That's true. But uh, some of them lose value very, very slowly only. And that is much less likely to be harmful to people than when they're losing value at 10% a year or 20%, let alone. 50 or 100% or more. So uh, mild inflation doesn't really have to steal, uh, it, it rob people all that much. Yeah, I, I guess I could agree to some extent, but I would also add the wrinkle that it can disguise what would otherwise have been price deflation. Right? Yes, some, it's true. Yeah. Some, uh, yeah. Some particular product or service is, is yeah. becoming that industry is becoming more productive. Prices would be declining, maybe yes, still but declining, but they're not declining as much. So that's that's a tax on people that don't it's hard forget, to perceive. But, yeah, but don't forget that when you have an inflationary process, so that prices that might otherwise have been falling don't, and may even be rising. It's also true that incomes are tending to rise, and your wages are tending to rise. So. So that's why I say it's not so simple to say that if prices are rising more quickly, we're all being robbed that much more <laughs> because it depends on how our incomes are growing compared to how those prices are rising. Right. In general, both things are happening at the same time. And the more rapid one is, and the more rapid the other one is. 
but there tend to be groups that can be groups in society that are suffering more and losing out and others that are gaining. Uh, for example, people on fixed incomes is notorious that if their incomes aren't adjusting with prices and inflation, they're going to be becoming worse and worse off. So, uh, but it isn't a simple, it's usually not the case that the higher the inflation rate is, the more the average person is getting ripped off. The average person is, is, a, is a rare bird. <laughs> it's more likely that everybody, uh, you know, that some people are actually uh, gaining and some people are losing, but it's very difficult to say what the average person is doing in these moderate inflations. Now, once inflation gets really, really rapid, it starts to take such a toll on prices and efficiency. We were talking about this before. Then, then, then the pie is getting smaller. Right. It's all there is to it. And at that point, of course, it's likely that the average person is 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 in fact suffering, perhaps suffering a great deal. Yes, and that seems to be, as you said earlier, the long run tendency for most all fiat currency systems. Yeah, the careful. other. Yeah, I said that the long run tendencies for them to lose value slowly, right? Not not for them to lose value rapidly. They can lose value slowly forever, right? Just to lose value, I guess you're right. Slowly, as you said, is the general long run tendency for fiat systems. The other pernicious thing here, though, is that as you said, when you go from slow inflation to rapid inflation, that actually starts to break down the division of labor, right? Shrinking the pie, and so. People in anticipation of that, at least as I've studied like the Weimar hyperinflation, for instance, they hoarded cash as a means of protecting against uncertainty. But then once it's clear that inflation is accelerating, they start dumping the cash. So it seems to be like oh, kind yeah, of this vicious hold, cycle. Yeah. No, no. The minute inflation starts getting it all high, the, the tendency is for people to hold less cash. And That's what I'm saying. You're hoarding it yeah. at first, and then you end up dumping well, it, which amplifies it, the inflation. Yeah, I'm not sure they were hoarding it at all in that story. They were hoarding it less and less, but they never were hoarding it much at the beginning. As soon as prices are rising, you know, 10% a year, which is the case in very the early stage of the hyperinflation in Germany, the velocity of money, which is kind of the opposite of how much people want to hoard it, starts to creep up starts to creep up and you're right then then you get to the point where in the extreme people get their their pay envelopes <laughs> or or their bricks of of uh, papier marks as the case may be and they run to spend them on the first thing they can spend them on because they're losing value so quickly and that's the that's the crack up stage of the hyperinflation right. but you know these are these are quite exceptional episodes, and uh, you know, uh, once in a while, it's uh, it's always interesting to study them, and it's always important to fear that such things can happen again, and they do happen in some countries to to this to today, but but um, but they are pathological cases. Even as central banking goes, you know, we can all uh, easily point to the uh, poor, not great behavior of most central banks. You know, the Fed has struggled, the ECB has struggled, but at least they managed to avoid the more flagrant kinds of mismanagement that uh, we saw in Weimar and that we see in some smaller countries uh, nowadays. 
so far. <laughs> I think so the far. story is yeah, yet so to far. be written, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so far. Let me ask you this then. So you made this point in your book that most people tend to believe that the since the Fed was implemented, that prices have become more predictable, output more stable, the business cycle less volatile. Yeah. But that's all, those intuitions are all wrong, basically. Uh, could you yeah, talk a yeah, little bit a about- A lot of them wrong, yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about how the the current Federal Reserve era compares to the pre-Fed national currency system in terms of those yeah. uh, business cycle aspects? Sure, sure. So uh, the Fed was established, uh, 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 the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913. The, the Fed didn't actually get going until- sometime in 1915, but we usually say 1914 is when the thing got, you know, as it were, you know, the, the first brick got laid for the thing. And um, so we have good, pretty good statistics for about 20, 30 years before that, from the early 1880s. We have pretty good statistics, macro statistics, not as good as later statistics, but they're not bad. And we have information on, uh, on, uh, banking crises. We have information about uh, inflation. We have infl information about the price level and how it tended to evolve, which is not quite the same thing as the inflation rate. And uh, we have, of course, business cycle uh, information. So we can look at that, those 30 odd years, and then we can compare them to post-Fed performance of these same variables. Unemployment's another one where, you know, it's those early unemployment statistics are a little dicey. Okay, bottom line: if you take the first, uh, if you take the first twenty-five years of the Fed's existence, that takes you up to the end of the Great Depression. It's a no-brainer. Everything was worse <laughs> between nineteen fourteen and the outbreak of World War II. The macroeconomic performance of the country is just a disaster. I mean, it's a disaster compared to before the Fed, and it's also a disaster to, compared to afterwards. It's it's the period when everything stinks. We even had very high inflation for part of that period. People forget that uh, the second worst inflation uh, of the 20th century so far was in uh, uh, World War the World War One period. In fact, there were some brief periods when it was the worst, when it had the highest rates, higher than the 70s and early 80s and 1980. Anyway, so everybody agrees that the inter that interwar period and World War One period were, were, were very, very bad macroeconomically, and nobody wants to repeat that. What's more interesting, though, is that if you compare the macroeconomic performance from before the Fed with the post-war period, which is the one where everybody thinks the Fed finally, you know, figured things out and everything got a lot better. The macro statistics I was summing up before, referring to before, don't show any tremendous improvement. Some cycles have been just as common. The contractions have tended to be just as long. Uh, there have been longer expansion periods, but now I'm not sure that's even true anymore. Uh, we don't have banking crises the way we did before. By the way, we had more banking crises in the in the 1930s than in those 30 years before the Fed, even though we had plenty in that era too. Now, I should say, by the way, the pre-Fed era was no uh, 
it, it was no idol. It was uh, we had a very unstable system, which is why the Fed was created in the first place. So I'm not saying that the pre-Fed decades were perfect and that system was great. No, it was a terrible system. But the Fed didn't improve on it at first, certainly. But it didn't even improve <laughs> things much uh, since World War II, especially when you consider that there have been a lot of other changes since World War II that should have made the economy more stable than back in the pre-Fed days. Uh, we have a much more diversified economy, much less heavily reliant on agriculture, for example. We have a much enlarged government sector, which all economists say should be stabilizing because you have more automatic fiscal stabilizers in that case. And I could rattle off five or six other changes that should make us less vulnerable. We don't have a gold standard, so there's no blaming the gold standard of any form for causing inst uh, financial instability. Most economists would say, good riddance, we should be better off, right? We don't have this terrible, uh, these golden fetters that are going to make uh, crises more common. So if you, if you think about the changes that have happened uh, since World War II, especially, but general, more generally since the Fed was created, and then you look at the macroeconomic statistics, um, it's pretty disappointing. <laughs> it's, it's, the Fed was supposed to end crises altogether. Of course, we know it didn't do that. But what I'm saying is that there's not, the evidence doesn't show any obvious prima facie, you know, it doesn't provide grounds for saying, well, the Fed's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's definitely made things better. No, you can't say that. Now, maybe, maybe with very careful study, with all kinds of controls and things and trying to really, really ferret out the differences that the Fed make uh, and uh, abstract from all the other changes that went on. Maybe a clever statistician could prove after all that we are better off with the Fed than we would have been without it. But certainly um, uh, 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 the basic information that's available to us right now doesn't seem to provide any obvious reason for thinking that that's true. And that's a point that I think not enough people realize. Interesting. So the, in terms of the degree of influence that the Fed has today on prices, output, um, let's say taxation via inflation, I'm not referring to CPI here, just you know, how much people are actually being taxed by currency debasement. How much influence do they have today on the modern economy? Oh, well, I couldn't, I mean, I don't know exactly how to, how to put a, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, magnitude on that. Obviously, the Federal Reserve is, is uh, of extreme importance in determining the, the nominal values that uh, our economy that we face, how prices evolve, how our nominal earnings evolve, how the dollar uh, uh, is uh, uh, valued in foreign markets, exchange rates, etc. So the, the Federal Reserve is, is extremely important. And its long-run importance is, is even more substantial because we rely on it to, to make sure that the dollar is at least good enough to remain a popular medium, not just nationally, but internationally. That's why we can get away with having so much outstanding debt because there's a strong demand for dollar debt. The dollar is perceived as one of the safer currencies in the world. And we get a lot of that value out of that. And of course, 
we have to give the Fed credit for that, if only because uh, <laughs> it could do worse. It could have done worse. So, um, so those the Fed is important in all those ways. It's 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 possible to exaggerate the Fed's importance. The Federal Reserve doesn't have the long run the capacity in the long run to determine how productive our economy is. It has some influence on that, but it's not great. The Federal Reserve certainly is not able to. Uh, determine how productive our factors are. It's not able to uh, make scarcity go away by printing money. So we shouldn't attack, we shouldn't ascribe to the Federal Reserve magic powers. <laughs> and sometimes people might be in inclined to do that. But at the same time, we have to recognize that it, it is of very, very great importance to how our economy performs and that when the Federal Reserve does a good job, uh, that makes a big difference. When it does a bad job, that makes a big difference in the other direction. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's easy for the Fed to do a good job. Uh, I think that this gets back to the discussion of central planning. There, it, it is not easy to run a central bank in a way that doesn't cause trouble now and then. I think we've all seen this. It's very clear in our lifetimes that uh, we might imagine that if we were in charge of the Fed, we would have done a lot better job, but I think we'd be overestimating our abilities. The truth of the matter is that centrally planning the money supply is uh, fraught with difficulties. There's no easy way to get it right, and mistakes are bound to be made, just as they are made by central planners who try to engage in planning more generally except that those fellows could do a lot more harm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so last question here. I know you said earlier that how we can move towards decentralized money, that I might not like your answer, so it's probably a hard path or impossible, perhaps. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that. Yeah. And well, then you've brought up Bitcoin a couple of times. How does Bitcoin fit into your views on uh, the movement towards decentralized money? Well, I think that uh, to answer the first question, <clears throat> uh, to, the possibility of decentralized, really decentralized money in the past depended on uh, our reliance and other nations' reliance on commodity standards like gold or silver because those those standard money monies obviously could exist without government uh, didn't have to be managed by any central government agencies it's just they're just commodities so commodity money system can be truly decentralized you can combine it with a decentralized banking system etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's very easy to to contemplate what a truly free market system would consist of how it would work even as long as you're assuming a commodity is the standard. Well, uh, today, of course, for better, for worse, we don't have commodity standards. We've got the fiat dollar. And it's very hard to envision how we could go back to any commodity standards successfully. I'm I, I, there are a number of reasons why going back is hard. And I don't just mean that nobody wants to do it or it's unpopular and all that. I mean, it's technically hard. Uh, one point, though, that's obvious that I think people can understand uh, without a lot of uh, uh, going into a lot of detail is that the gold standard that worked so well before World War One worked well 
to a very significant extent because it was international. It, it worked well because a lot of countries were involved. Most obviously that was necessary to give you the combination of price stability on one hand and fixed exchange rates on the other. And that combination never existed before and has never existed since. We'd love to have that back. I would love to have it back. But if you think getting one country to go back to gold is hard, think of trying to get them all to do so. <laughs> so politically and uh, strategically, this is, a, this is a huge ask. There are other reasons why though it's unlikely we could ever recreate a gold standard. The, the, uh, the other one I'll mention is that it would probably have to be done by concerted government action, which means originally the gold standard would have to be enforced by central banks, which means that we'd be have to trust central banks to keep promises to convert in gold. And guess what? Nobody would trust them anymore. That, that genie left <laughs> the bottle in the 1930s. So this is huge. We can't go back. That means that the only hope for truly decentralized monetary systems is to get away from the dollar somehow without trying to reform it. And uh, that's when you start thinking about Bitcoin and parallel currencies and all that. But I'm afraid I'm a pessimist about that too. The dollar's network advantage is huge. And even other national currencies, their, their established networks are huge compared to Bitcoin, certainly compared to any other uh, cryptocurrency, compared to gold, compared to anything else that might become money. Um, I uh, don't think Bitcoin's going to become an international medium of exchange. It has been successful uh, for certain purposes it certainly attracted a huge following as an investment um, medium for hodling, as it were. But hodling ain't spending. And uh, unless you see merchants really lining up to accept uh, Bitcoin for ordinary pay payments and see them doing so everywhere, you're not going to see Bitcoin become one of the world's important monies. And I don't see any... Uh, tendencies in that direction. So <laughs> much as I like the idea of decentralized money and think it has worked well in the past, uh, I'm inclined right now to think that uh, we, we, we really have to certainly make alternatives feasible and make it legally so that they can try to get established. But we had better not give up on fiat currencies quite yet because we might be stuck with them for a long, long time. And that means that people who believe in free markets and would rather have decentralized currencies still need to put their two cents in when it comes to you know, talking about central bank policy, criticizing the Fed, but criticizing it and other central banks constructively because they ain't going away anytime soon, in my opinion in that uh, I don't say that with any glee or anything like that, but I think it's a mistake to, to just be waiting for the great cataclysm where another money takes over. Well, I certainly respect your views and I hope you're at least wrong about Bitcoin being able to disrupt <laughs> central banks because as far as I can tell, central banking is pretty bad for most people in the world. Um, but that that argument makes a lot of sense to me actually. So. 
George, I've kept you a long time. I really appreciate you doing this. Would you please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Well, uh, the best way to find out about my work is uh, for the books, of course, you could just look me up on Amazon. Most of those books, uh, I think they're all available on Amazon, the ones that aren't out of print. I've been writing books long enough that I have a couple that are out of print by now. And uh, I also am a regular contributor and editor-in-chief to Alt-M, that's A-L-T-Capital-M, stands for Alternative Money, which is the Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives online uh, publication. So they can check out that. There are now many hundreds of articles there by myself and Lawrence White and other contributors. Wonderful. George, thank you so much. You're welcome, Robert. See you later. See ya.